to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. So, if you've started to thumb through your Bibles to look for the scripture reading for the book of the Wisdom of Solomon, you're not going to find it. The Wisdom of Solomon is an apocryphal book, part of the Old Testament apocrypha, which the Eastern Orthodox Christians and Catholic Christians include in their Bible, but we do not. These writings are a collection of Jewish writings, and they were written in the time between the writings of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Wisdom of Solomon, in particular, is thought to have been written around 50 CE. So that's interesting timing, isn't it? I mean, that's around Jesus was alive in that range or, you know, in the decades around that. but this book was, is thought to have been written in Alexandria for an Alexandrian Jewish community there. And because the book has a strong undercurrent of um, the persecution of the Jewish people, some biblical scholars suggest that it was written during the reign of the emperor Caligula. And since it was written to a community of subjugated Jews, who were trying to find their way um, in a world dominated by Roman imperial power. The first 10 chapters of the book, the author recounts the salvation history of the Jewish people, reminding them of their history and of a counter-narrative to imperial power, offering them a narrative of liberation and hope. So the three verses that we're going to hear today are embedded in this larger counter-narrative in the salvation history, and they speak in a particular way to the practice of humans making idols out of animals or forces of nature. So think about the golden calf in the Old Testament or um, the Egyptian sun god. So it's speaking, the writer is speaking to this practice. So listen now uh, to these words. If through delight in the beauty of these creatures, people assume them to be gods, let them know how much better than these is their maker. For the author of beauty created them. And if people were amazed at the power and the working of nature, let them perceive from them how much more powerful is the one who formed them. For from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of the Creator. Because we probably have never heard these verses before, I'm going to read them through one more time just to let them soak in. They're so lovely. If through the delight and beauty of these creatures, people assume them to be gods, 
Let them know how much better than these is their maker, for the author of beauty created them. And if people were amazed at the power and working of nature, let them perceive from them how much more powerful is the one who formed them. For from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator. I'm so compelled by these verses because um, holy presence uh, beauty in these passages or in these verses is a window into holy presence, into God. And it's a gateway to the counter narrative of hope that the author is trying to convey to the people. So, Thomas Merton, who's a 20th century mystic, in his book New Seeds of Contemplation, he wrote about this practice of apprehending God through the beauty of the created world. And Merton names the counter-narrative of God as the cosmic dance. And this is what Merton says, we do not have to go far to find echoes of the cosmic dance in nature. When we are alone on a starlit night, when by chance we see the migrating birds in autumn descending on a grove of junipers to rest and eat, when we see children in a moment when they are really children, when we know love in our own hearts, or when, like the Japanese poet Basho, we hear an old frog land in a quiet pond in a solitary splash. At such times, the awakening, the turning inside out of all values, the newness, the emptiness, the purity of vision that make themselves evident provide a glimpse of the cosmic dance. So very young children sometimes when they're playing hide and seek will leave part of themselves showing because they think if they can't see you, then you can't see them. So their shoes may stick out from underneath a curtain or something, and they think that you can't see them. Well, the beauty of the world around us, what if that is like God's feet sticking out underneath the curtain between time and eternity? For both of these writers, for the wisdom of Solomon and for Merton, Beauty is a way, or gives us a clue as to the ways and whereabouts of God. Now, the beauty of the natural world is with us always in some form or fashion, always with us, even when we have degraded or destroyed it. It is with us. Every breath we take is a mysterious and beautiful interplay with nature. But very often, the natural world, much like our breath, is in the background of our awareness. But there are those moments, like what Merton's talking about, when beauty captures our attention and it stops us in our tracks and we don't just see beauty in passing, but we behold it. 
And there's a particular quality of presence um, when we behold something. There's an openness that we bring to the moment, and we're apt to feel it in our bodies. We may have a felt sense of a welling up within us, of wonder or of peace, or there may be a quickening in our core that heightens our senses and our attentions, but when we behold something, we often feel it in us. Some say we're seeing with the eye of the heart. And for Merton, these moments that are felt so fully in us are nothing less than deep calling to deep. And if we stay with it, we may glimpse through the beauty the numinous shining of the sacred. And we discover that even a sip in this moment of beauty like this is enough to taste eternity. And there is a felt sense of assurance that everything, everything, regardless of the contingencies pressing upon us, everything is indeed very good. Have you had a moment like that? And in those moments, we are in the dance. I'm aware during, um, of how beauty, the beauty of the natural world seemed more present to us than ever during the lockdown and the tenuous months that followed last year. In the face of such unimaginable death and social upheaval, life ground to a halt for many of us, not all of us, but for many of us, life ground to a halt. And the eyes of our hearts opened wide, and we innately became hunters and gatherers of beauty. And the slideshows at the end of our worship allowed us to share our harvests with each other. We were rooting for beauty, weren't we? Were you rooting for beauty during that time? And then did you hear God hearkening to you through the beauty? Did you know the deep peace of the running wave and the blooming flower and the quiet earth? All around us, the natural world was offering up to us the counter-narrative of God's peace that passes understanding. And we kept faith with beauty during that time. We kept faith with the beauty of the natural world. And now how is it as we start to open back up again and the more habitual rhythms of life emerge is it hard to stay in that open, receptive posture? Do you notice, oops, sorry, do you notice beauty receding into the background again? I find myself, as the pace picks back up, that I'm giving beauty, I do a quick drive-by and no longer stay with it in the ways that I did. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, this is part of the Chronicles of Narnia, 
This book tells the story of Eustace Scrub, and it's his second trip to Narnia. This time, he's accompanied by one of his classmates named Jill Pohl, and the two of them are running from bullies, and they climb into a hiding place and close the door, and they find that they are in Narnia, Aslan's country. And Aslan meets them there, and he tells Eustace and Jill that they must help him find Prince Rillian, who has disappeared many, many years ago. And Aslan gives them four signs that will guide them in their search. So Jill and Eustace set off, and they're given a guide named Puddleglum, who's a marsh wiggle, and they set off on their adventure to find Prince Rillian. And after several days of hard travel, they are weary and they're discouraged, and they meet another traveler on the road who tells them that there's a castle not far ahead where some gentle giants live, and that they are having an autumn feast, and they would love to have Eustace, Jill, and Puddleglum there at the autumn feast. And so the children are so desperate for warm beds and a feast and hot baths that they followed the directions and forgot all about looking for the signs from Aslan. And so once they get to the castle of the gentle giants, and by the way, the gentle giants are glad to have them there because they're going to eat them, but they don't know this yet. We're not there yet. They're looking out the window back at where they've come from, and they recognize, they see on the road the words, under me. And they recognize that this was a sign from Aslan, and in their craving for rest and comfort, they had run roughshod right over it. So there are so many forces in life that distract us from not paying deep attention to beauty. Our drive to get wherever it is we're going is relentless. Even when we're going to a good and noble place, the drive to get there can be relentless. The drive to get through the list, to get over the hump, to get through the day. It was the allure of a quick end to their discomfort that distracted Lucy and Eustace. It is especially hard, especially hard to resist the momentum of fear and anxiety. Jesus says over and over again, do not be afraid and do not be anxious about tomorrow. Almost by default when fear and anxiety come online, they climb into the driver's seat, and we just hang on for the ride. Our ego's appetites are many for security, for affirmation, for entertainment, and these can also lead us to run roughshod right over God's feet. For Merton, these deep encounters of beauty that wake us up and sink us into the com cosmic dance are so subtle and so fleeting and our attention so distracted that he invites us to become students of these moments, to stay with them, 
to become curious, to notice what is opening up in us when we behold beauty and drink deeply of it so that when life presses upon us, as it surely will, we will keep faith with the beauty of life and God's presence that is cloaked in it always. What about keeping faith with the beauty of our own being? This may be even harder. During my time of sabbatical, my husband and I traveled to Olympic National Park in Washington State and we encountered stunning beauty. And one day I sent a friend several slides of what we'd seen, the western coast and hiking through the Ho rainforest. I also sent her a picture of my son and my husband and me standing in front of this old growth cedar tree. And my friend texted back in response to these three images, all beautiful. I like the faces best. And her response caught me by surprise because for me, there was the three of us and there was this beautiful 400-year-old cedar tree, but she saw a single swath of beauty. Do you ever do that? Do you ever see yourself as an observer of nature rather than part of the vast array of creation's beauty, forgetting that you too are fearfully and wonderfully made? And even those times when we do remember that the natural world is our kin, do we see in ourselves the depth of beauty that we do in nature? Do we see in ourselves that same depth of beauty? Merton did. Merton did. He seamlessly includes us in his descriptions of beauty that wake us up to the holy. He says, children being children, in other words, children being themselves, which they are so much better at than us. And then he says, when we know love in our hearts, when we are true to ourselves, to our nature, which is to love, the dance lives deeply and beautifully in us. The 1997 film, Life is Beautiful, is set in the Tuscan city of Arezzo. And it's set when Nazi Germany occupied northern Italy. And like the Narnia books, this Italian film is a parable. And the film opens in 1939 as the hostility towards the Jews of Arezzo is just beginning. And the main character is a Jewish man named Guido. And in the opening scenes, he meets and becomes smitten by a woman named Dora. And they are an unlikely pair. She is a Christian aristocrat. aristocrat and Guido is, again, Jewish and a clowny figure in his manner and in his appearance. But from the moment they meet, Guido goes about wooing her 
with his wit and his creative imagination. And throughout their developing relationship, the insults against the Jews of Areso mount, and Guido responds with his creative humor to these insults. If you've been to Atlanta's annual Pride Parade, there are counter-protesters there holding up huge cutouts of flowers on long sticks, and they take these big, bright flowers and they tilt them over in front of other protesters' hateful signs to cover them up. This is, this is the kind of response that Guido had to what was going on around him. Guido eventually do marry, and they have a son named Trisse. And as viewers, we know the narrative of the Holocaust and what we have been fearing comes to pass. Dora returns home one day to find that Guido and four-year-old Josue have been taken away for deportation to a concentration camp. And once they are there to keep the horror of the concentration camp at bay from his young son, Guido desperately contrives a make-believe world for Jisue. He tells him that the concentration camp is the site of an elaborate game, and if they follow the rules, one being that Jisue has to stay hidden in the barracks at all times, if they follow these rules, they'll win a prize. And both of them endure the hardships of life in the camp through playing this game, and they also find ways to send creative messages to Dora, who voluntarily came with them to the camp, but is being held separately in the women's barracks. On the eve of the war's end, the Nazis begin evacuating the prisoners from the camp, intending to execute them and leave them in mass graves. So Guido finds a safe place for his beloved son to hide, and then he goes about searching for Dora to warn her. And in the process, Guido is caught by soldiers and is executed himself. But because Jusue followed his father's rules, he survives, and he finds his mother after the camp is liberated. Throughout the film, Guido is a beautifully numinous character. His creative, nonviolent resistance and his love of life offer a counter-narrative to the horror of what is going on around him. Jesus of Nazareth was another such ridiculous character who kept faith with the beauty of his being. He exposed the folly of empire and of the human ego. He lived a life illumined by justice, told us parables of a relentless mercy that will not let us go, and he waking us up to the kingdom of God, which binds all things in heaven and earth together as one. Jesus' own creative maladjustment, his turning inside out of all values, cost him his life. 
And the story goes on that at that moment, the curtain between time and eternity tore into, revealing the fullness of divine love from head to toe. And this is how it is. This is how it is whenever we sink into the joy of the dance. Whenever we cultivate love instead of cynicism or hate or fear or despair. When we're able to slow down and scoot our egos over ever so slightly out of the driver's seat. When we're able to do this, slow down and remain open-hearted to the joy and the suffering of life. We keep faith with the beauty that is in us, and the dance beams through. Merton closes the passage about the cosmic dance saying that no distraction or despair can alter the beauty of things or stain the joy of the cosmic dance. No despair can alter the beauty of things. The dance goes on. Even when we forget or fumble in our desire to keep faith with beauty, even if we never get our contemplative gaze in focus and never quite know the deeper dance, God is always keeping faith with us, beholding us, in God's great heart. The life and death and resurrection of the love made flesh is the assurance of this grace. The life, the resurrection and death of the love made flesh is the assurance of this grace. It is the counter narrative of the Christ that underlies all of our days, and it is beautiful. Amen.